More than half a million people worldwide have succumbed to the COVID-19 virus, almost 9,000 here in Canada. While the race is on with researchers to develop a vaccine, there are two potential inoculations that could be the answer. When may they be available is the question. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Researchers at Oxford University in the UK have developed one vaccine with AstraZeneca, while CanSino has also developed one with the Chinese military. These are a step in the right direction, but you won't be rolling up your sleeve anytime soon. Coming up later, we're going to talk with a bioethicist about the use of human challenge trials to speed up the process. First, let's get a look at the two potential vaccines. Rewa Dionandan is an epidemiologist, uh, epidemiologist and professor at the University of Ottawa, and he joins us now. And tell me, Ray, do the two vaccines work the same? No. Well, they're similar um, methods, but they're quite distinct in their uh, their approaches. So uh, the the one that's the leader, that's the Oxford vaccine, mm-hmm. uses what's called a, uh, a chimp adenovirus to deliver a payload of COVID content. And the uh, CanSino one uses a human adenovirus. So let's back up for a second. They both use what's called a viral vector approach in which another virus is like a torpedo that delivers a bit of the virus that we care about, the COVID virus, into the cell. And it does so because that way the, uh, the torpedo, as it were, isn't really problematic. It won't cause problems. And and the bit of the COVID vaccine, they, sorry, the COVID, the COVID virus gets into your cell, can then trigger an immune response. It's a new way of looking at it, a new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So the um, the Oxford one, uh, because it uses a genetically modified chimp vaccine, it cannot infect you, we think, we hope, right? right? What it does is convince your DNA to produce more of these protein fragments that then trigger an immune response. Now, the way that they're different, though, is that the Chinese one, or the CanSino one, um, because it uses a human adenovirus, it's possible that a human immune system might neutralize that torpedo, that delivery system, before it gets to its target. Whereas and that's the human not, immune system and that's tends not, what not you to want, attack right? the two That's that, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so as a result, the, um, you know, the efficacy data is less impressive for the CanSino one. Um, it shows that it doesn't have as much of an effect. And as well, that demographic that we care most about, the over 55s, seem to be the least affected, which is not great. Um, they're both good vaccines mm-hmm. based upon phase one and two data. But the Oxford one, in my opinion, is um, demonstrably better. Now, I understand they they trigger, or at least one of them triggers a dual immune response. Now, is that uh, what you were describing there with the the torpedo? No, no. The torpedo is a delivery mechanism. It's um, it's a Trojan horse, right? So you slip in the the COVID genetic material without having to expose the person to the actual COVID virus. The dual response is antibodies plus T-cells. So everyone knows about antibodies. That's what your body produces to, in response to an infection, and that while they linger, it can probably attack other aspects of the virus um, for some time. T-cells have a longer memory. They can last for years sometimes. So this is great. Um, there's been a lot of confusion in, you know, in media uh, around people who recover from COVID and who only have antibodies for a couple of months. Therefore, people assume, well, a vaccine will only last for a couple of months. If we can trigger a T-cell response, then the vaccine immune reaction can last up to years. So this is great news. It means that with um, one or two doses, we may have long-lasting immunity. Does it work on everybody? 
Oh, that's a good question. So the thing about phase one and two trials is that they're all about safety and showing that the vaccine has some kind of effect. And when we recruit people for phase one and two trials, we tend to recruit healthy people, people without underlying conditions. And that's not ideal for mass distribution of, of a vaccine. So with a phase three trial, uh, we care about will the vaccine actually offer protection from infection. That's different from will the vaccine actually produce antibodies. So the phase three trial that's undergoing right now, actually in many countries, I think Brazil, South Africa, and the UK are, are where the Oxford um, vaccine is being trialed. We have recruited, well, not we, I'm not part of it, but they, we, the scientific community, have recruited a variety of people, including those with underlying comorbidities, because we want to know, will this work in the real life scenario? And we're all holding our breath, right? So hopefully mm-hmm. that data will come back by, you know, the fall. And if it's good, uh, we start producing en masse. So I'm very excited by this. I'm, I'm quite bullish on this vaccine. I think it's the leading candidate and our best hope for having a vaccine before the end of the year to market. Ray Watt Diodandan is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, epidemiologist and professor at the University of Ottawa as we talk about the, the two possible vaccines, the one at Oxford University in the UK and the other CanSino one working with the Chinese military. Now, at this point, have there been any any serious side effects to worry about? Both vaccines only show mild adverse events. We call them mild. I mean, we, you know, we distinguish between mild and severe. It tends to be a, a qualitative distinction. But the mild effects are things like headache, some aches, pain at the site of injection, which is not unusual at all. It's um, The scale of these events is more so than what you'd expect from the flu vaccine, probably more in line with what some people get from the shingles vaccine, which can be a brutal experience for a couple of days. I've, I've had a bad experience with the shingles vaccine myself. But um, everyone in the Oxford trial uh, was able to have their symptoms of adverse reactions resolved with Tylenol over-the-counter remedies and, and resolve within a couple of days. So we won't know again if there are more serious adverse reactions until the phase three data come in, which is longer lasting. There may be some pe- people who will have more serious neurological reactions, for example. We just don't know. So that's part of the problem with selecting only a healthy set of individuals to receive this uh, trial in a phase two. Phase three will tell a lot more. And in phase three, have they started at this point? Yes. So... One of the miracles with vaccine development in this crisis is the speed at which all of this has unrolled. At the very start of the pandemic, I was one of the people who said, don't expect a vaccine for four years. The the world Mm -hmm. record, I think, is three and a half years, if I'm not mistaken. So um, and part of the reason for that is it takes time to recruit. It takes time for administrative uh, results. It takes time to manufacture. It takes time to get the trials up and running. For this vaccine, though, they started the phase three trials instantaneously as soon as the phase two was done before they published the phase two data. So phase three trials are underway, to the best of my knowledge. And that's why I fully expect to have good phase three data in our hands by the fall. Do you see this as a silver bullet? Silver bullet is a dangerous word. I'm, I'm weirdly optimistic about this, almost emotionally so. And in some ways, if this works, it sort of it it buys some people out of bad predicaments. It buys the Americans out of a bad predicament. They made some bad choices with some bad leadership. A vaccine may actually, you know, pull them pull them out of the fire. It's it's a silver bullet in the sense that 
if we can, if it works, you know, if it doesn't turn people into lizards, as David Fisman tweeted once, um, then we can manufacture at scale and get most people immune by next winter. Then we don't have a crisis bleeding into the fall of 2021, right? It's in that yeah. sense, it's mm-hmm. a silver bullet. So you, you said that you, you were bullish on this, you are optimistic. What, what's driving your optimism about this? A number of things. One is the the data about the efficacy uh, in the phase two trials. The, the fact that 100% of recipients mounted an immune response by day 28, and that a second dose really uh, upped that immune response substantially. Number two, that there was a T-cell response, which means long-term immunity is likely. Number three is that the adverse events, while many, were not serious. And number, and what number up to you? Number four, I guess. Number four is, is the fact that everyone is poised and ready to mass produce at scale. That's really unusual. I mean, that's, they're, they're making enough doses already so that when the phase three data comes in, they can start shipping it out right away. Also, this formulation can be stored at room temperature, if I'm not mistaken. So it doesn't require refrigeration. It means that deploying it will be a lot easier. So everything is lined up to get this out at scale to most people who need it as quickly as possible. And the fact that so many governments are jockeying for access to this formulation is indicative in some ways about the, uh, the confidence that the scientific community has around it. I'm sure there'll be better formulations coming down the pipeline. You know, I've, I've heard rumors that uh, you know, Pfizer and other companies have potentially um, more interesting vaccines, but this one is first to market showing a strong effect. And so, Again, I'm just I'm so so pleased by the heroism of people working in labs around the world who have pulled this together in a record time. It's Nobel Prize winning science if it ends up being the first vaccine uh, with mass distribution. It really is because it will have stopped. I well, I don't want to overstate mm-hmm. it. No, no. It will have prevented possibly an economic tragedy that may linger for months, if not years. So um, I just want to applaud the heroic lab monkeys around the world and the people working uh, long hours trying to get this done. There's also a new set of technologies at play here. So um, one of the things that we have now we didn't have during SARS-1 was this new mRNA DNA or genetic fragmentation approach to making vaccines, and also that's viral vector approach, the Trojan horse torpedo method I mentioned. Mm-hmm. That's new. So we're using finally 21st century cutting edge technologies to combat this this pandemic. Up to now, it's been 19th century technologies, masks and hiding in your house. So finally, technology is showing what it can do, and I'm so excited. Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Raywad Dionenden is an epidemiologist and professor at the University of Ottawa. While the potential vaccines are a positive, the idea of human challenge trials has sparked some ethical concerns. Ruth Macklin is a distinguished university professor emerita at the Department of Epidemiology and Population Health at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. And, and Ruth, can you describe how challenge trials work? Uh, yes. Um, the... Uh methodology in a challenge study is basically to take the volunteers, and of course they must be volunteers with informed consent, 
to inject those volunteers with a strain, in this case of the coronavirus, it's whatever virus the vaccine, uh, vaccinologist, the researchers are studying. So you inject healthy people with the vaccine, with, I'm sorry, you give the vaccine first, and that's presumably, hopefully, to prevent the day. After they have the vaccine, then the researchers inject people with the coronavirus, in this case, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19. And the question then, the study, is whether or not the vaccine will prevent the infection. So that's the method. And one, one more quick thing about the methods. They have to have a comparison with people who have not been injected with the vaccine to see what happened, been injected with the vaccine, but are not challenged. So that's the way it works. And, and in terms of, like, we've had phase one, two, and, and I understand the phase three trials are underway right now. How would phase three trials be different than challenge trials? Well, it's interesting because the, the main difference is that phase three trials, that's the third and last before uh, approval is sought from the regulatory agency, um, Typically, a phase three trial requires thousands and thousands of people, whereas the in, if, if it's not if they're not injected uh, with the with the coronavirus. But in the challenge study, there are many, many fewer, sometimes as few as 50 to 100 people. Now, there are a lot of problems with the small numbers, but the the point is whether a phase three trial would still be needed even if the challenge study shows that the vaccine works. Uh, in terms of the challenge trials, I'm wondering, who, who determines who can actually take part? Well, um, there, first of all, there's a website, and your listeners may be interested in going to that website to see what it says. It's called One Day Sooner, and you just, you just Google One Day Sooner, and you get the website. Mm-hmm. So there are now... Thousands of uh, thousands of people, more than thirty thousand people, who have signed up, presumably signed up. Of course, then they have to go. We have to go through medical examinations, and they have to get informed consent. What they're looking for is younger people, uh, and on the web the website for one day sooner, they're looking for people between eighteen and twenty nine or thirty, because those are the people who, in general, have had less severe illnesses uh, compared to older people or those with other diseases. So, first of all, there would have to be, obviously, they'd have to be examined medically to see uh, whether or not they're appropriate. And then they would have to get give their informed consent. And there are probably a lot of things that these people don't already know about it. For example, they'd have to be quarantined. They'd have to be put into some kind of a field hospital for the period of the study and then quarantined after that. So there are probably a lot of things that these volunteers don't yet know. Yeah, I was going to say, you wonder, what uh, what are the other risks that uh, they might face taking part? Well, they would face the same risks that anybody who gets the disease um, would face. And even though it's generally true that younger people, and in this case, they're quite young, they have to be over 18 so that they can give consent uh, up to the age of 30. And the statistics show that um, there are less, less severe cases and many fewer deaths. But that's not 100%. There are some younger people who have some very bad reactions to the disease itself. 
And one is what's yet unknown is what reactions there might be, what adverse events, as they're called, or negative reactions there might be to the vaccine itself. So there are very many unknowns about this virus, and it's why I and some of my colleagues are opposed to challenge studies, where there, whereas there are uh, 15 Nobel laureates have signed up uh, and sent a letter uh, to the U.S. government uh, agencies uh, claiming that there are um, this is a, a rush, we have to do this quickly, and people have uh, endorsed. The idea now, of course, the Nobel laureates themselves are not going to be eligible because they're usually over thirty, mm-hmm. uh, and they would not be eligible for the trial. Ruth Macklin is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. She's a distinguished university professor emerita at the Department of Epidemiology and Population Health at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. As we talk about human challenge trials with this potential vaccine for COVID nineteen. On the horizon now. The, you mentioned the twenty to thirty thousand people that signed up to to take part. Uh, are they? Do they get paid to take part? Uh, there's been no mention of that, hmm. which I find extremely interesting because there have been challenge studies, and some of the challenge studies in other for other diseases, for typhoid, for example, for malaria. Uh, and the challenge studies that have been conducted for those uh, in those other uh, for the other diseases uh, have paid people sometimes a lot of money. So there was one example of a student, a graduate student at uh, uh, Oxford in the UK, and he received something like six six hundred that six thousand sorry six thousand pounds which is a lot of money uh, for, for, a, for a graduate student for participating in the, in the trial. So it's not, there's been no mention of that and even and very little mention in the medical literature that I've been looking at and the ethics literature of whether they're going to pay and if so, how much. You conclude uh, that basically human challenge trials are ethically unjustified. Why is that? Well, l- let me be more specific and that mm-hmm. is, I I would certainly say for this disease, they're unethical. Um, I'm I'm going to be silent on the question of whether they're acceptable for other conditions. But there's one very important factor here, and that is there is no treatment. There not only isn't a cure, but there's no treatment. For the other diseases for which challenge studies have been conducted, there is some effective treatment. But in this one, there's not. So the main reason why I would argue is that it's unethical is that you're taking healthy people and injecting them with a sometimes fatal, a very serious disease that is sometimes fatal. And if they contract the disease, if the vaccine doesn't work or if it works only part way, then these people are going to get very, very sick and some of them might even die. So there's just one more point, and that is, will it really be quicker? Right now, there are approximately 140 preclinical studies and several in phase one and phase two and a number of them in phase three. So a challenge study hasn't even started yet. So uh, there is no guarantee that once you get all the the, uh, participants lined up and give them informed consent and do the relevant medical tests, first of all, there's no guarantee that it'll even be quicker. And that's the main reason why the people who promote it are promoting it, because they claim that you'll get an answer very much more quickly. 
Ruth? But without a treatment, my conclusion is that it's unethical to do it. Ruth, I want to thank you for joining us. Very interesting point. Ruth Macklin is the Distinguished University Professor Emerita at the Department of Epidemiology and Population Health at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine in New York. This leads to our unpublished.vote question. How long before a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19 will be available to the public? Three months, six months, 12 months, or longer than 12 months? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Raywat Dianandan at the University of Ottawa and Ruth Macklin at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.